All right, this morning we continue in the book of Daniel, Daniel's prophecy, and we get to a very specific, kind of amazing and wonderful prophecy in Daniel chapter 8. I'll read the entire chapter for us. Again, as I do, reminding us that this is not just Daniel reciting things that he has seen, but this is God's word to him and through him to us as well. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in, the, in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him with his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. <clears throat> but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering, because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over the, of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then this sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. <clears throat> when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. 
And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So ends the reading of God's infallible, holy, inerrant word. May he write it deep in our hearts. May it bear fruit in our lives. As we come before it, let me take us before the Lord once again in prayer. Our God and our Father, we come before your word. Now we ask that you would bless this time by making your word go out and not return to you empty, but rather that it would accomplish what you purpose for it and be successful in the things for which you send it. <clears throat> for us, Father, we ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that our eyes and ears would be open to see and hear what you would have us learn this morning. And in so doing, make your word a lamp to our feet <clears throat> and a light to our path that we might walk according to what it teaches us. O oh Lord God, we ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. <clears throat> well, in the last chapter, chapter 7, we moved from the storytelling sections of Daniel, chapters 1 to 6, to this apocalyptic revelation that's in the latter part of the book this prophetic revelation of future world-changing events. Also, since chapter 2, Daniel, in the original language, is written in Aramaic, the language of the world of that time, much like English is the language of the world today. But now in chapter 8, the book of Daniel switches back to Hebrew, and it will continue in Hebrew until the end. Why is that so? Why does that happen? I think the simplest explanation is uh, to appeal to two different audiences. Verse, or chapters 2 to 7, the, the primary audience seems to be the world around God's people. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, Belshazzar, the Medes and Persians, the distant Greeks and Romans that will rise and fall as we see in chapter 7. But now in chapter 8 and following, and even back in chapter 1, 
the primary audience is God's people, the Jews, what God's going to do for them and in them. And of course, for us as well. So it switches to Hebrew. That's my basic take on why that happens. Now, Daniel 8 contains one of the most amazing, most detailed, most accurate prophecies in all of the Old Testament. Other parts of Daniel, too, uh, do so as well. It's so accurate that critics of the Bible, critics of Daniel, want to push the writing of Daniel way, 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 way back until sometime in the 100s B.C., because the things that take place in this chapter take place oh, around 170 to 160 B.C. Well, it couldn't have been written before this, so it must have been written afterward. The problem with that, the basic problem with that is, it just doesn't work time-wise. Daniel existed before then, <laughs> so we have, some, uh, we have some difficulty with the critics' uh, complaint. It's accurate. It's accurate prophecy. It comes from God. And I want to look at it and focus on two basic ideas this morning. First is another look at the sovereignty of God, but this time in a way that is very close and very involved with the details of the history to come. First idea. And then the second idea is the God who does not tolerate rebels. He breaks them. Two basic things. Another lesson in the sovereignty of God and a lesson in uh, the futility of rebellion against him. So the sovereignty. We know that there's a common attitude about God in the world around us by many, many people. God, maybe there's a God, maybe he created things, maybe there's a supreme being out there, some people will say, some higher intelligence or something, but it's remote, removed, far from us. At best, he might have superintended the creation of the world or the evolution of the world, if they want to even go that far. But he really just kind of steps back and kind of watches history unfold. Oh, he knows things. But he can be changed by them, and he can react to them and change his mind. But he's a distant God. He's removed. He's not actively involved. The problem is, <laughs> prophecy in Scripture totally wipes that idea out. Prophecy shows us over and over and over again in the Bible that God tells us what's going to happen, and then it happens. And often these prophecies have just incredible, remarkable detail and accuracy. That's the case here with Daniel 8. It's there in Daniel 7 as well. We know what the kingdoms are that rise and fall. I want to spend some time this morning doing something I don't normally do, which is go through some history you, you get a sense of what's going on in Daniel 8 when you understand the history that's going on in it. Do a quick review of the text and then look at God's close involvement with and super, uh, superintendence and sovereignty over history. So the background. Many of you uh, may know this already, but here's what's behind this prophecy in Daniel 8 go back to a, a little country called Macedonia, north of Greece. The Macedonians were kind of considered rednecks by the Greeks. 
356 B.C., a son was born to the king of Macedonia. And the king gave him a first-rate education. He was taught in person by Aristotle himself. At 16, the father died and this young man became king. And by the age of 30, 14 years, he had created one of the largest empires of the ancient world. First by conquering the Greeks, then the eastern Mediterranean, Egypt, Persia, and all the way east to India. It might be apocryphal, but it's said that when he reached the Indus River in India, this great wide river, he wept because there were no more worlds left to conquer. He wanted to cross the river and continue, but his troops refused to do so, convinced him to turn back. He settled in Babylon, intending to make that the capital of his kingdom, but instead he became ill and died, 33 years old. This, of course, is Alexander the Great. He is the great single horn that we see in our text. After his death, he had a son and another one who claimed to be his son. We're not quite sure what was going on there. And four generals were supposed to hold the empire together for his son until he came of age. But the sons, both of them, were killed And those four generals ended up ruling the country or the kingdom as four separate empires. These are the four horns that rise up after the large horn. And we know these men. Antipater, succeeded by Cassander, ruled Greece and Macedonia. A man named Lysimachus ruled Asia Minor, what's now Turkey. A man named Ptolemy ruled Egypt. And a man named Seleucus ruled in Persia and what we now call the Middle East. These four are the four heads of the leopard from Daniel 7 and the four horns in chapter 8. Ptolemy's descendants would go on to rule Egypt as pharaohs until the great Cleopatra. Seleucus's descendants became known as the Seleucids, the Seleucid Empire, and eventually a descendant of Seleucus would rise to power named Antiochus, and you may have heard of Antiochus Epiphanes. He did not succeed his father as king. He succeeded his brother. How did he do that? By getting rid of the son. This is an evil man, and he began his reign in an evil way. He only ruled for 11 years, from 175 B.C. to 164 B.C. This is the little horn that rises out of one of the four horns in chapter 8. Incredibly evil, incredibly arrogant. He called himself, and he had it stamped on coins, which we have examples of to this day. He called himself Theos Epiphanes. God manifest. God appearing. We could loosely say God made flesh. He was determined to make Greek culture, Greek language, Greek religion, the only common shared thing in his realm. And he brutally suppressed, absolutely brutally suppressed, any other language, any other practice, any other religion. Sometime between when he came to power in 175, and some people say as late as 171 or even 170, I saw 
all sorts of options and the things that I read. Sometime in that period, he deposed the Jewish high priest, just got rid of him, and eventually got rid of all the priests. He outlawed circumcision among the Jews. If any mother or father circumcised their, their son, the whole family was killed. He ended the sacrifices, he ended the priestly functions, and he ended up setting up a monument or idol of some kind. Some think it might be a meteor to Zeus. Did it in the Jewish temple. And then he sacrificed to it. And you might have heard what he sacrificed. A pig. An unclean pig sacrificed on God's holy hill to a false god. Now this outraged the Jewish people and a priestly family, the Hasmoneans, led by Mattathias, his son Judas Maccabee, fled to the wilderness and eventually led to a revolt that recaptured Jerusalem in 167, possibly 166 B.C. You can read about this in the uh, intertestamental books, the Apocrypha. They're not scripture, but they're worth reading because they will tell you something about what was going on in that time period. In the meantime, Antiochus Epiphanes is fighting a war out in the east, and he dies under very mysterious circumstances of some unknown strange disease in 164 B.C. Now, why all these dates? Why all this information? One, it tells us who the things, people are and things and events are of chapter 8. But we've also got this curious number in here, 2,300 evenings and mornings in verse 14. What do we make of those? It could be that it's just another way of saying 2,300 days. Kind of an echo of Genesis 1. There was evening, there was morning, the first day, the second day, and so on and so forth. One of the problems is, is that's not what it says here in Hebrew. It just says 2,300 evenings, mornings. Other, another possibility is... It could, be, it could be half that. Instead of 2,300 days, it could be 1,150 days because it could be referring to the regular evening and morning sacrifices that took place at the temple. This is a very plausible uh, option because of the, uh, the context of what was going on. The, the daily sacrifices, it says, were abolished uh, they were denied to the Prince of Heaven. And that kind of makes sense. It makes sense with what Antiochus Epiphanes was doing as well. So either way, it's about six years and four months, or about three years and two months. Different time periods that fit different dates. Now the problem is, if you bother to write down those dates, you'll see that none of them really quite fit quite right <laughs> to either six years or three years. You kind of have to force them in there a little bit. And so... We're not really sure. We can't say with a great deal of confidence what the 2,300 evenings and mornings refers to. Or it could be something else. But I'll get to that later. So all that history is background to understand the context of what's going on in chapter 8. So what, we, what Daniel tells us, it's the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Remember, he's the last king before the Medes and Persians come. It's in his third year, so it's close to the end of his reign. 
Daniel has a vision, and he's taken to Susa, the capital of Elam in the east. And he's by a canal, and it's reminiscent of Ezekiel being by the canal when he received his vision in the same location. There, Daniel sees a ram with two horns, one bigger than the other, charging west and north and south. Nothing can stand before it. It becomes great. But then a goat arises with one great horn, attacks and breaks the ram and its two horns, tramples it to the ground. The goat becomes great, but just as it becomes great, the horn is broken and replaced by four. None of them is powerful as the one horn. But out of one of the four comes a little horn, which itself grows exceedingly great. It says it grows to the host of heaven itself. I I have this picture in my mind of a horn growing up to heaven, and it reminds me for some reason of the Tower of Babel. And I think there's a similar kind of rebellion going on, both desiring to be great, both desiring to reach to heaven. In any case... He throws down some of the host of heaven, tramples them. This is probably a reference to what he does to the priests in the temple. Becomes great as the prince of the host of heaven, it says in verse 10, even taking away his regular burnt offerings, those are the morning and evening offerings, and overthrew the place of his sanctuary. So he puts himself in the place of the prince of heaven himself. What did he call himself? Theos Epiphanes, God manifested, God appearing. Takes away the burnt offerings over through the place of his sanctuary, gives it to Zeus, sacrifices a pig there. This is going to be the state of affairs for that period of 2300 evenings and mornings, whatever that is. So Daniel seeks understanding of the vision in verse 15, and he sent the great angel Gabriel. God must really care about Daniel to send Gabriel himself. And Gabriel explains very clearly, the ram is the king of the Medes and Persians, one horn greater than the other, that's the Persians. The goat is the king of Greece, the great hornet's first king, that's clearly Alexander. After him, four kingdoms, we know that happened from history. From one of them, when the transgressors have reached their limit, which we'll get to, A king will rise with great power who understands riddles and has a bold face. He will cause great destruction, destroying mighty men and the saints. He'll rise up against the prince of princes. Is this not what Antiochus Epiphanes did? He rose up against God himself and destroyed many. And then you have this short, pithy, but wonderful statement in verse 25 at the end of that verse and he shall be broken, (laughs) but by no human hand. The vision is to be sealed up. It's for the future, for many days from now. Daniel is sick for a period of time. He's finally able to get up and go about the king's business, but it says at the end he's appalled by the vision, and he did not understand it. Now, the last part of that is easy to understand. He didn't understand it because it's in the future, But for us, we know history. This vision is clear as day. It could hardly be any clearer than what it is. Not only does Antiochus Epiphanes perfectly fit the description of the little horn, but he does so in great detail. 
He did abolish the sacrifices. He did take away from God his regular burnt offerings. He did assault the prince of princes. He took away his priests. He took away his worship. He enthroned a false god in, the, in God's temple itself. And he did meet an end, but not by a human hand. It's interesting to read the historical sources. They don't know what disease he died from. They just know he died while campaigning from a mysterious, sudden disease. Now, in prior chapters in Daniel, we've seen the sovereignty of God on display. God blesses the young men taken into captivity so they're wiser than anyone else, healthier than anyone else. God enables Daniel to interpret dreams that no one else can. God saves his servants from the fiery furnace and from the, the, the den of the lion. He brings Nebuchadnezzar low like a beast, raises him back up again. God takes away the kingdom and gives it to the Medes and Persians. God knows and controls the rise and fall of future kingdoms, even the abhorrent, terrible, scary fourth beast. Here again in chapter 8, God is in control. But what we see that we haven't seen before is some incredible specific details. Why does all this happen? If God is in control, why does this happen? I think we get a clue in verse 23. It says, at the latter end of their kingdom, this is the the kingdom of the little horn, when the transgressors have reached their limit, the king of bold face arises. When the transgressors had reached their limit. There's some debate about this, but I really think the best answer is that the transgressors here are not the Greeks, they're not the kings of the Greeks, but they're the Jewish people themselves. We know Hellenization was popular among the Jews. This adopting of Greek culture was prevalent even before it was forced on them by Antiochus. They adopted Greek dress. They adopted Greek language. They adopted Greek food. They took upon themselves Greek education, literature, Greek culture, drama, the arts, literature, that sort of thing. And they began practicing Greek religion. We know this from all sorts of external sources. You can read it even in the apocryphal books. The criticism of the people of Israel, restored to their land after 70 years, the temple rebuilt, Ezra and Nehemiah leading the way. And what do they do? Same thing they've always done. They fall away and chase after foreign gods. Consistent with their history, They go whoring after other gods. And so when God allows Antiochus Epiphanes to rise up, there's a sense, to me at least, of God showing his people through the despicable idolatry of Antiochus Epiphanes that their idolatry was just as despicable, just as disgusting. He's going to allow this to happen for a period of time. But the time that he allows is a short period of time. Again, it's hard to fit those 2,300 days or 2,300 evening, morning sacrificial days 
into a specific time frame. We, we just can't make it fit very well. And so to me, the 2300 days just represents an, a specific short period of time that God is going to allow this to happen to teach his people a lesson. The days of this rebellious great king, this self-appointed God made manifest are numbered. 2300. And they're short. So again, God is not some deity sitting far off, strumming a harp, watching things happen. He's involved. I'm going to allow this, but I'm allowing it for a reason. He controls with his own hands the rise and fall of kings. He allows and controls their very actions. This is the God that we serve. And it should fill us with wonder and with praise. So Daniel doesn't understand the history because it hasn't happened yet. He doesn't have the benefit of hindsight like we do. But what we also see in verse 27 is that Daniel was also appalled by the vision. And this is where we get into the second part of what I want to talk about this morning. He's appalled by the vision. And I think there's two factors for why he's, two reasons for why he's appalled. One is clear. One is undoubtable. He sees this great king rise up against the host of heaven, even defeat some of them, rise up against its prince, take away his offerings, take away his temple, trample underfoot his sanctuary, sacrifice unclean animals in his very temple. Such an affront to the God of Israel, the Most High God, would have appalled Daniel. And it should appall us as well. We should be disgusted by the acts of this terrible king. But I think there's a second thing that Daniel is appalled by. And that's the transgressors of verse 23. God's own people. Daniel can look down and get a glimpse, get a sense. God promised to restore us to the land. But we're going to do what we've always done before. And you can kind of shake your head with him and go, not again. Not again. This is appalling. And it's an appropriate response. Romans 12, verse 9, admonishes us to let love be genuine. And then the very next thing it says, and I think what follows that statement, is how love is to be genuine. Paul is teaching us what genuine love looks like. The very first thing it says after that, abhor what is evil. Hate what is evil. Rebellion against God is evil. And we should be appalled by it, as Daniel is appalled by it. And too often we're not. Too often we're like the churches in Revelation that we've been studying. Either we promote rebellion, the Nicolaitans, the Jezebels, we allow it to be taught and we practice it ourselves, or we, 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 we disagree with it, but we, we, allow it to, we, allow, we allow other people to do it. We tolerate it in our midst if we don't practice it ourselves. 
And this rebellion can be all sorts of things. It can be the false teachings that we saw in the Revelation churches, the false practices, the adultery, the prostitution. It can be acts of sin. It can be false teaching. I saw this week an article where the author makes the point, and I think he's right based on my own 12 years of experience examining the statements of faith of different churches that apply for loans. Evangelicals have lost our sense of what the Trinity is. We don't, we don't know who God is. We don't know that he's the triune God. We've forgotten that the Son is one person with two complete natures, God, divine and human. If we don't know who God is, how can we, how can we know how he saves us? How can, you know, how can we know what he saves us from? And many evangelicals still struggle with the ideas of biblical inerrancy. The virgin birth of Jesus, questioning that. Whether Jesus actually existed as a historical person. The idea that God can change. He can change his mind. He is surprised by events of the future. These are fairly common, unfortunately, in even evangelical churches. Our practices leave something to be desired as well. We compromise on all sorts of things, whether it's divorce and remarriage, allowing single people to have sex outside of marriage, abortion, homosexual behavior. We're too tolerant of greed and selfishness and pride. We're far too judgmental. We don't have anywhere near the compassion we should have for the poor and the needy, those who are struggling, those who are downtrodden, the very ones that the prophets call out Israel for in the Old Testament. We should not tolerate these things. They should all appall us. We should abhor them. And you might think, well, the good churches do. And let me say this. That's easy to do about other people. (laughs) The deeper danger is the toleration we have for rebellion and evil in ourselves. Of all people, we are the most tolerant of our own sin. I'm tolerant of mine. And I've talked to enough people. You're tolerant of yours as well. We excuse them. Too often we revel in them. Here are the Jewish people. They're going to be taught a lesson by God. You think you're so righteous. Here you are chasing after other gods again. Let me show you how disgusting that is by setting up this horrible Greek king and his disgusting religion. If they needed that lesson, then we need the same lesson. Our own sins are as evil and wicked as the sins we so eagerly see and criticize in others. Get that log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of someone else's. In those sins, our rebellion is just as great. We love to quote Calvin, our hearts are idol factories. But we don't just create idols and set them out there. Where do we put those idols? Right here. Was Antiochus Epiphanes an evil man for putting up a statue of Zeus and sacrificing a pig in the very sanctuary of God? Oh, absolutely. That's disgusting. But how disgusting is it for me or for you to create an idol, put it right there in our hearts? 
Are your bodies not the temple of the Holy Spirit? Does not Jesus dwell within you? Are we not doing the same thing? We sacrifice to our idols as well. Oh, we, we feed them and we nurture them and we cherish them. Our sin or rebellion is just as great. Now Antiochus Epiphanes was destroyed. Broken, says God to Daniel, but not by human hand. It was God that done him in. The same destruction awaits all those who rebel against God. And there's only one remedy. Only one. And it's the one offered by God himself, who's the offended party. The offended party takes action to make things things right. And we know he does this in his own son. The abomination of Antiochus was horrible. But think about this. Putting to death the perfect son of God. What an abomination that is. But God was sovereign over both situations. The former to teach a lesson to his people, I think. The latter to save his people from their sins. Here we have Jesus, the only one who ever obeyed perfectly who did not rebel, though tempted to do so. Only Jesus did not deserve to be broken, and yet, what does it say? He was broken for us and for our salvation. This is yours and mine, by God's grace, and received only through faith. You can rebel, or you can repent of your sins and turn to Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Daniel was appalled by what he saw, and he should have been appalled. We should be appalled by what we see in Daniel 8, but we should be more appalled by what we see in ourselves. That's the mark of Christian maturity. My sin becomes more disgusting to me the more I walk with God, the more I want it rid from myself. The answer is always the same. There's only one way to deal with it, to repent and believe. And instead of being broken by God, be rescued by Him. The vision, God says to Daniel, is true. The word of salvation in Christ is also true. You can rebel. You can set up the abomination of desolation in your own heart. Or you can repent and believe and be cleansed by the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, indeed, we do thank you for the work that you have done for us. On our own, we are not only incapable of obeying you, but we don't want to. We're rebellious. And so we thank you that you have turned and changed us, that you have raised us up from death due to the transgression and iniquity of our own sins, given us new life by the power of your Spirit in Christ and with Christ. As surely as you raised him from death, we also are raised out of the death of our own sins to new life. Help us to put off the old man. Help us to clean out the idols in our own little temple sanctuaries in our own selves. 
and help us to serve you and walk with you in, in peace and in purity and devotion and love. Being appalled, yes, at the evils we see around us, but always, <laughs> always looking within, and protecting and watching over that sanctuary that you have made, that dwelling place that you have taken up within each one of us. We will sin, we will fall, but keep our hearts and eyes always turned to Christ, coming always and again to Him, knowing and believing and receiving the forgiveness that we always have in Him as we read week after week after week. You have made so many great promises and given so many great assurances in Your Word, Father. We take these and we cling to them as we cling to Christ. And we thank You for Him. Help us to walk in that newness of life, Father, we ask. In Jesus' precious name, amen.